Hello, friends. This is Darren Hayes of PigskinDispatch.com. Before we take you to your favorite Sports History Network show, just want to tell you a little bit about some merch that you can pick up that represents your favorite SHN podcast. So far, there's t-shirts, coffee mugs, and even books from some of the authors that do podcasts right here on SHN. Who could buy something better than that than have the history right from the, the gentleman that you hear talking about it? But we also are adding things each and every day. And where's that store, may you ask? Well, it's at SportsHistoryNetwork.com. Up at the top, there is the SHN. HN merch button. Click on that. It'll take you right to the store and you can be representing your favorite podcast and show the world that, hey, on the swag that I'm using, it's the headquarters of Sports Yesteryear, Sports History Network, and my favorite podcaster, the Sports History Network store. Shop there today. I mean, Big Red is what I grew up in. You know, I worked on a farm. We used to do the bale thing. You know, everybody thinks, oh, you don't lift. Yeah, that's what we actually did. We were out in the field lifting bales and at 11 years old, that's what it was, I was, I knew I'd play for the Huskers. I said, you know, I'm going to go play for them boys one day. I mean, it's it was the pride of our state. We were out there, we were lifting bales. There was a tractor, had a radio on it. We're all listening to the game because we couldn't go to them. Nobody could afford to go to the games. And then one day, I got to go to a game with the people that I held bales for. They took me to a game, and I was hooked. It was like, I'll be here one day. I don't know. That's what. That's part of Nebraska. We don't have a professional team here, so we lock in on our college team, and that's what happened to me. Yes, who? You read. That's who. Down the field long. He is going for Williams. Complete. And he gets close line by Lawrence Taylor. One, one, two. 25, Welcome to Hidden Yardage. I'm your host, Joe Moore. This podcast is a journey back to the 1980 college football season through the memories of those that played, coached, and covered it. New episodes released each week will carry listeners through that season one week at a time. For more information, please visit the website at www.hiddenyardagepodcast.com. If this is your first time listening, you may want to go back and start with episode one. This is episode four, In All Kinds of Weather. At the quarter pole of the 1980 college football season, the race for the national championship was still a crowded field. The biggest statements in September were made by Notre Dame, who opened the year with a lame duck head coach, but was 2-0 with two wins over teams ranked in the top 15. Alabama was cruising towards the third straight title and had needed just one week to take over the top spot in the polls, while Ohio State, Southern Cal, and Pittsburgh were all unbeaten despite looking vulnerable against lesser competition. From the Big 8 Conference, Nebraska had surged to number three on the strength of a couple of early blowouts. Two of the Cornhuskers' future opponents, Penn State and Missouri, had climbed several spots since the preseason polls, and Georgia, who began the year ranked 16th but was now 10th, looked to be Alabama's stiffest competition for the SEC crown. With half of the Pac-10 ineligible for the conference title or the Rose Bowl, it seemed like the second or even third place team would end up representing the league in Pasadena. USC and a surprising UCLA squad appeared to be the class of West Coast football, but neither was allowed to play in a bowl game. The fourth week of games provided a dose of chaos, as a full 25% of ranked teams would become unranked, 
and mighty Oklahoma would fall victim to the upset bug. The Sooners lost a rain-soaked game in Norman to Stanford, who was still calling itself the Cardinals at that point, with some quarterback named John Elway. It was Oklahoma's first home loss in nearly four years. But to understand one of the biggest storylines in week four of the 1980 season, you'd have to go back a lot further than that. In July of 1863, America was in the middle of the third and bloodiest year of the Civil War. At a small crossroads in southeastern Pennsylvania, armies clashed at what would become the war's decisive Battle of Gettysburg. Elsewhere, the Union hoped to take control of the Mississippi River with a two-pronged attack. Ulysses S. Grant would lead troops in an attempt to capture the rebel stronghold at Vicksburg, while a force of about 4,000 men participated in the longest siege in American military history at Port Hudson, just north of Baton Rouge. Among the soldiers trying to starve out the Confederates were those of the 91st New York Infantry and a private named Madison M. Ball. In 1869, with the war behind him, Ball enrolled at Rutgers University, where he was honored with a class prize for his oratory skills. There's no evidence that he ever used those talents to give the first-ever halftime speech, but we do know that Ball was among the players of the first-ever college football game on November 6, 1869. That first game was part of three scheduled between the College of New Jersey, later named Princeton, and Queens College, later named Rutgers. It was barely recognizable as the game we love today. There were 25 players to a side, no referees, no crossbars on the goalposts, and no throwing or running with the ball. By most accounts, it was a savage affair, and Rutgers won the first contest 6-4 before dropping the rematch a week later on Princeton's campus. One report of the game cited that a Rutgers professor, riding past the scrum on his bicycle, shouted, You men will come to no Christian end. After its initial setback, Princeton won 32 games in a row against Rutgers, and more than 100 years later, Rutgers and Princeton were still playing each other every season. But Rutgers had designs on joining big-time college football, and Princeton didn't see that it could remain competitive with the Scarlet Knights. In January of 1979, the two schools announced that their 1980 meeting would be the last in the series. Rutgers trounced the Tigers 44-13, as both programs expressed regret with the rivalry coming to an end. Following the 1981 season, Princeton and the other Ivies dropped down to the 1AA level of competition. Since that last meeting, Rutgers has won just 44% of the games it's played, and the two schools have never again met on the football field. Princeton's glory days of football were well in its past, but it did make at least one contribution to the sport that is still recognized today. In the 1930s, while guiding Princeton to two undefeated seasons, head coach Herbert Fritz Chrysler took the team's normally plain black helmets and adorned them with triangular wings and three stripes. It was meant to represent the folded back ears of a tiger, and when Chrysler left Princeton to coach the University of Michigan, he brought the winged helmet design with him. The coach felt that the unique look made it easier for the quarterback to spot his receivers downfield. And in 1980, the Wolverines had a receiver that you couldn't miss. Anthony Carter was a sophomore wide receiver for Michigan that at least one teammate called God's gift to football. Undersized by today's standards at 5'11 and 165 pounds, Carter and his famous skinny legs were nonetheless electric. His very first punt return went for a touchdown and he thrilled fans with a last-second 45-yard catch to beat Indiana as a freshman. Carter would go on to be a three-time All-American and be inducted into the College Football Hall of Fame. He was so good that he made Bo Schembechler turn away from his typically meat-grinder offense to force passes in his direction. 
and it's because of Carter that the number one jersey at Michigan means what it does today. On this Saturday in 1980, Carter would be sharing the field with a player whose star shined even brighter than his, South Carolina running back George Rogers. Rogers was a senior and had done nothing in his first three games to dampen the preseason Heisman hype that surrounded his name. He had piled up over 400 yards and five touchdowns during his team's 2-1 start, but the Gamecocks arrived at Michigan Stadium looking to bounce back after falling to Southern Cal the week before. Michigan, too, was coming off of a loss, and dating back to the 1979 season, had won only once in its last five games. Maybe the desperation and pressure for a victory was behind some of the pregame tension between Jim Carlin and Bo Schembechler, but Gamecocks assistant coach Bob Brown remembers how Carlin engaged in a battle of mind games with Coach Bo. Jim had talked to some people in the Big Ten about going to play Michigan and what were the, if there were problems. And the biggest problem that people said was when you come in from pregame, they wait for you to go out because you're on the near sideline. And where that ramp comes out is right at the 50-yard line. So they would come out after you went out, so you had to make a, a way for them to get through. They run across the field, touch that M, go blue side to go to the other side. But it, it was they used it as an intimidation factor. I mean, they were hollering. So you had to kind of give way for them. So, and Jim said, okay, guys, we may get penalized, and i got to check with the officials about what the rule is, but we're not going out until they go out. So we go up there, and the, and the two the dressing rooms at the top of that ramp are right across from one another. So Jim said what he was going to say to the team and then started walking. And the two coaches, we were standing by the door right at the back of the dressing room, which opened to the ramp, and the, the other dressing room door was right across the, the ramp. So he'd come by us, and he'd say, have they gone out? We'd shake our head no, and he'd keep walking. That went on for a few minutes, and then about that time, he went to the door, and the other locker room door opened, and Bo was looking out. So there the two head coaches kind of looking at one another to see who's going to one-up the other. So finally, I guess Bo realized what we were doing and they went out. So we went out after they did. Michigan may have been worried about stopping Rodgers, but what it really should have been on guard against was itself. The Wolverines made several critical mistakes to allow the Gamecocks to stay within arm's length and set up a dramatic final play. After an early field goal by South Carolina, Michigan responded with two touchdown passes from John Wangler to Anthony Carter the last one coming with just five seconds remaining in the half. Late in the first quarter, the Wolverines were threatening inside the Gamecocks' five-yard line, but running back Butch Wolfork, who earlier in the week had told reporters that he didn't get the ball enough, dropped a pitch on fourth down, and Michigan came away empty. At halftime, Michigan led 14-3 and opened the third quarter ready to deliver the knockout punch. That's when another Wolverine mistake changed everything. After reaching Carolina's eight-yard line, Michigan fumbled on first down, and the ball rolled all the way into the end zone where it was recovered by the Gamecocks. During its march downfield, Carolina was intercepted as Gary Harper threw into a crowd of no less than six Wolverines. But while Michigan players celebrated, there was a flag on the field. And a penalty flag is down. Penalty on the play, Larry will be holding defensively against the Wolverines, and what happened was Andy Canavino playing linebacker had coverage on George Rogers. He came to the line of service, Andy Tackle. 
just flat out head tackled him right in front of the referee. And that will ruin a good interception. Schembechler was furious about the call after the game, saying, when a guy carries the ball 36 times a game, you have every right to tackle him. The rule book disagreed. With new life, the drive continued, and Rodgers scored from two yards out to bring his team closer at 14-10. On the first play of the fourth quarter, the Wolverines stalled at their own 29-yard line and lined up to punt. The week before, Bo had successfully faked a field goal against Notre Dame. This time, his fake punt went nowhere, and Carolina got the ball with great field position. After the game, Michigan's coach would explain that the fake is called at the line of scrimmage based on how the defense is aligned. Several players never got the call because, Bo said, the Gamecock players were yelling and creating confusion. Seven plays later, Carolina was in the end zone for a 17-14 lead, and it was clear that Michigan needed a hero or risk falling to 1-2 on the young season. With 2.35 left in the game, the Gamecocks were at the five-yard line with a three-point lead. With one of the country's best running backs and a defense that had kept Michigan off the scoreboard all half, the decision to hand the ball off to Rodgers seemed like a no-brainer. But Carolina called a pass play, and the Wolverines intercepted in the end zone. Now there was a chance for Michigan star Anthony Carter to win the game for his team. He got the Wolverines moving with a 20-yard catch. Three more completions followed, and then an 11-yard connection from Wangler to Carter set up Michigan with first and goal at the Gamecocks' six-yard line with just 28 seconds left. On first down, the Wolverines ran the same play that Carter had scored on in the second quarter, but the pass was batted away. A second down run moved the ball to the three, and Michigan called its final timeout to discuss strategy on its sideline. It may have been the greatest play called by human minds, but we'll never know. Two blitzing linebackers were immediately in the backfield. Wangler was sacked back at the 10. With no timeouts, facing fourth and goal and a running clock, Michigan had no choice but to scramble back to the line of scrimmage and run a play before time ran out. Fourth down from the 10-yard line. No huddle. Wangler to throw. Over the middle for Carter. Out of his hands and out of the end zone. Incomplete. Time runs out. The ball game is over. Wangler's pass was thrown behind Carter, allowing a Carolina defender to get a hand on it. It looked for a moment like Carter still might be able to make the catch, but he fell to the ground and the ball landed just out of his reach. Carolina had claimed one of the biggest wins in its program's history, and Michigan had a losing record for the first time in Bo's career. Thousands of fans greeted the Gamecocks when they landed in Columbia later that night, while Michigan went back to work to find an identity and save its season. But don't cry for the Wolverines just yet. Something tells me they'll get things figured out, and we'll be revisiting them come November. Fred Waring was born in 1900 in a small town in western Pennsylvania. He was on stage performing music by the age of five, and when he was 12, he was the leader of his town's Boy Scouts Fife and Drum Corps. As a teenager, he formed an orchestra and started touring, all while pursuing an architectural engineering degree at Penn State. Towards the end of his senior year, he decided he wanted to make music his life. He left the university to tour nationally, and he rose to fame at the head of Waring's Pennsylvanians, the band enjoyed multiple top 10 hits like this one. You gotta be a football hero to get along with a beautiful girl. You gotta be a touchdown getter, you bet. If you wanna get a baby to pet, the fact that you are rich or handsome. He became known as the man who taught America how to sing. He maintained a close attachment to Penn State 
and served his alma mater throughout his life. So much so that the university's West Hall's dormitories is connected by the Waring Commons. Waring also was an early promoter and financer of the blender. When Jonas Salk was working on a vaccine to eradicate polio, it was a special version of Waring's blender that was used to aseptically prepare culture media. That vaccine was developed at the University of Pittsburgh, which might be the only time that rivals Penn State and Pitt worked together on anything. And if you're wondering, no, there's nothing I can't connect back to college football. In 1950, Waring's weekly radio program held a contest to create a song for a college football team. The University of Nebraska won, and Waring wrote a song honoring the Cornhuskers. In 1954, he was given the state's highest honorary title when he was made an admiral in the Nebraska Navy. Now, in 1980, the Blender Man's alma mater and the Cornhuskers would mix it up in Happy Valley as a pair of top-ranked unbeatens. Penn State was experiencing the zenith of its football program under its 53-year-old iconoclastic head coach, Joe Paterno. The Ivy League-educated Paterno would read Virgil to his players in the locker room, encourage them to become socially and politically active on campus, and was constantly toting the virtues of his grand experiment. That was the ostentatious-sounding name given to his belief that college football players should be students first and athletes second. The attention earned by the grand experiment would win him no popularity contests among his peers, but that was about the only thing Paterno wasn't winning. In his 15 years at the helm of the Nittany Lions, Paterno had amassed the highest winning percentage of any active coach. He led his squad to 10 top 10 finishes, including three unbeaten and untied seasons, and the program's only Heisman Trophy winner. It would seem the grand experiment was working, but Paterno himself said that it would take a national title before people were finally convinced. A criticism of Paterno's Lions, who did not belong to a conference, was a perennially weak schedule. To correct for that, the school lined up several intersectional clashes with programs like Miami, Alabama, Notre Dame, and Nebraska. Scheduling this caliber of opponent would win Paterno respect. Beating those teams would win him a national championship. But that would be easier said than done, and in 1980, with the country's toughest-rated schedule, Paterno was coaching with the added pressure and disappointment of a 1979 campaign that was marred by ugly off-field incidents and a disappointing 8-4 record. Coaching under pressure was nothing new for Paterno's opponent on this day, Nebraska's head man, Tom Osborne. In 1977, Osborne's fifth in charge of the Cornhuskers, Nebraska was the preseason favorite to win the national title and carried the number one ranking into the season. Things didn't go as planned. Nebraska dropped three games before beating North Carolina in the Liberty Bowl. As Osborne trotted off the field after the bowl game, he was met by a regent from the University of Nebraska, who greeted him with a handshake and a congratulations. Then he told him that his job had been on the line. Osborne endeared himself to Nebraska fans as the offensive coordinator on the 1970 and 71 national championship teams, the first such titles in school history. He was set to take over for legendary head coach Bob Devaney in 1972, but Devaney was convinced to return for the elusive three-peat, and so Osborne served as coordinator for another year as the Huskers went 9-2-1. In 1973, Devaney took over as athletics director, and the coaching job belonged to Osborne. He would go on to build a legacy that would rank him among the greatest of Nebraska's heroes, and he even represented the state in the U.S. Congress. He was the embodiment of the Cornhusker spirit, and he ran a program built on hard work, commitment, integrity, and running the football. 
Osborne took the I formation and added the option attack to it. He could exploit the A-gaps with helmeted landmines disguised as fullbacks, or outflank a defense with elusive I-backs that could gain the edge and take it the distance. He had a formula that consisted of players waiting their turn behind experienced teammates and going through countless practice reps so that when their number was called as juniors or seniors, their production would be automatic. Andy embraced walk-ons in a way that few, if any other programs around the country did. During the first seven years of his reign, Osborne had earned a record of 65 wins and just 18 losses. His teams were always contending for a title. But he had the misfortune of sharing a conference with Barry Switzer and the Oklahoma Sooners, and he was just 1-7 against them. But that's a story for another Saturday. This week's game was a nationally televised contest against Joe Paterno and Penn State in Beaver Stadium. Penn State had played at Nebraska the year before and been walloped 42-17. Each team had been impressive through the first few weeks of the 1980 season, but this was clearly the best team either school had faced to this point. Penn State was trying to sort through a two-quarterback system, with Jeff Hostetler and freshman Todd Blackledge splitting time. Nebraska had a senior signal caller, Jeff Quinn, and a wealth of depth at the famed I-back position. The starter was a sprinter that transferred to Lincoln from Oregon State named Jarvis Redwine. He had unseated the school's all-time leading rusher and one of the all-time great names of college football, I.M. Hip, in 1979, and Redwine came into his senior season with eyes on the Heisman Trophy. Behind him were Craig Johnson and a third-string sophomore named Roger Craig. But for all the headlines that the team's running backs would collect, this team, like those that came before it, was carried by the famous Blackshirts defense. And they would have their way in front of the largest crowd in Penn State history. You're leaning the wrong way. It wasn't about the offense in my day. You know what? When you wore a black shirt and you come up, there's nobody wanted to mess with you. Our number one unit on defense, you did we would stuff your ass. And that was that would be the first team as well. You, you, there was a little difference there. We were in tents in practice. You should have seen our butts back then, buddy. We, we were kicking some butt. And, and you know, if it was our, our first off, string offense got macked around a little bit by us because, you know, we didn't play. Our defense was the pride back then. It wasn't the offense. For me, it was all about intensity. And I brought the intensity up. You know, when it was time, you know, guys prepare differently now. And, you know, and I don't know how, if it's any better now, how they prepare. But for me, it was like, you better get your head in the game now. Because put your helmet on, strap it up, because I'm going to be damn violent. And that's what it was. I, I come to play. The night before the game, as was tradition, Osborne went to the movies with his team and watched The Big Brawl a fast-paced martial arts movie starring Jackie Chan in one of his first forays into American movies. On Saturday, Penn State's quarterbacks would be wishing they had the benefit of stunt doubles against that Nebraska defense. Oh, yeah, high on a windy hill overlooking the lush Nittany Valley sits Beaver Stadium packed with some 85,000 people this afternoon for the ball game between the Cornhuskers and the Nittany Lions. And this Penn State's scrappy young defense did its best to slow down the top-scoring offense and total yardage team in America. But Nebraska's defense was simply on another level. The Blackshirts would sack Hostetler twice on Penn State's first possession, then force and recover a fumble on the next. Nebraska used the turnover to jump out to a 7-0 lead, and after another drive ended with the sack of Hostetler, it was time for Paterno to turn to his freshman, Todd Blackledge. 
but there was already blood in the water, and the Huskers' defense welcomed him into the game with an interception that led to Jarvis Redwine's touchdown and a 14-0 lead. Penn State would answer with a touchdown of its own to make it 14-7 at the half, but the game never quite felt that close. Nebraska would harass both quarterbacks to the tune of nine sacks and limit Penn State to just a total of 146 yards while forcing seven turnovers. Hostetler finished just one for four for 12 yards, while Blackledge contributed three interceptions. The final score was 21-7 for the visitors, and Jarvis Redwine was as good as advertised. And splitting into the right side, and there's a toss going out to Redwine, to the 45, to the 50, he's to the 40, and down he goes at the 40 of Penn State. Beautiful running of the option. Jeff uh, Quinn faked it into the middle and then pitched it off to Jarvis, who got a great block from his flanker over on the left side, Tim McCready. And Paul Lankford is the man who finally made the tackle on marvelous Jarvis. Redwine finished with 189 yards on more than 30 carries to further his Heisman campaign. Osborne would tell reporters after the game that he had the most talent of anybody he'd coached since Johnny Rogers. Now, for the understated coach, that was as close of an endorsement as a player could hope to get. The Huskers would return home the next week to welcome the Florida State Seminoles, while Penn State had to face another top 10 team, this time on the road against number 9 Missouri. The Lions would have to figure out their quarterback situation quickly if they hoped to not let their fine defense go to waste. It was a problem that could have been avoided entirely, but a mistake on the recruiting trail let a future Hall of Famer that always wanted to play for Penn State slip away. In 1978, a senior quarterback from East Brady, Pennsylvania, was waiting for a scholarship offer from Penn State. Paterno and the Lions had already offered two All-State quarterbacks and said that they would make room on the roster for him, but he'd have to play linebacker. Torn between playing for his favorite team and playing his favorite position, the senior called his brother, a former NFL player, and asked for some advice. His brother told him, Before you board those chartered flights for the away games, the flight attendants never want to know who the linebackers are. They always want to know who's the quarterback. That was all he needed to hear. And in 1979, Jim Kelly signed to play with the Miami Hurricanes. But Miami football in the 1970s was not yet quarterback U. As a matter of fact, in the 1970s, Miami football was not much of anything. Like Florida State, the university had almost dropped football before turning to a hard-driving taskmaster named Howard Schnellenberger to run the program in 1979. Schnellenberger played at Kentucky under Bear Bryant and later coached for him at Alabama. He came to Miami after coaching in the NFL and brought a take-no-prisoners attitude that served as the bedrock of what would become the U. The facilities were so bad that during recruiting visits, Schnelly and the coaches would take the players on a sailboat and show them the area's beaches, instead of showing them the football headquarters. It was a hell of a sales pitch, but any player that came to Miami thinking life as a hurricane would be a trip to the beach was in for a rude awakening. Schnellenberger ran a brutal camp and took it upon himself to ensure that his players would always be the best conditioned and best prepared any time they took the field. In his first meeting, he stood in front of his team and told them that he'd come to Miami to win a national championship and he had five years to do it. The Hurricanes went 5-6 and six in 1979, but that included an upset of Penn State in State College, where Paterno got a sideline view of Jim Kelly, who was now starting as a freshman for Miami and running its pro-style passing attack. 
1980, the Canes started 3-0, including a win over a ranked Houston team in the Astrodome. In Week 4, they prepared for a visit from Florida State and Bobby Bowden, a somewhat cuddlier version of Schnellenberger, but take Bobby lightly at your own risk. Bowden had guided the Seminoles to an undefeated season in 1979 and had them ranked in the top 10 after three straight wins to start the 1980 season. Florida State's defense was yet to allow a point, and the offense was humming right along as well, not missing a beat after replacing its top two quarterbacks from the year before with junior Rick Stockstill. But there was some reason for concern as the Knowles prepared to invade the Orange Bowl to take on the first of three straight undefeated teams. Stockstill was nursing a sore shoulder that was re-aggravated in practice, and both the starting and backup center were injured on back-to-back plays during the team's blowout victory over East Carolina. It looked like neither would be ready to play by Saturday, and a backup guard would have to move over to fill the position. The game kicked off at 4 p.m. in front of the largest home crowd for Miami football in a decade. Nearly 60,000 fans were expected, more than double what the average attendance was in 1979. It was a far cry from a few years earlier, when anybody visiting an area Burger King restaurant could get a free ticket to a Hurricanes football game. John Madden started at center for Florida State despite his injury, but he lasted just one series. That would force junior Redis Coggin, who was the backup guard, into service. He'd been snapping the ball all week long during practice to get ready for Saturday, but there was one thing missing from practice that Coggin had to deal with during the game. Miami nose tackle Jim Burt. After the game, Bowden counted 10 mishandled snaps between Coggin and Stockstill. It took the Seminoles seven series before they could manage a first down, but it mattered little, since Florida State still had the top-ranked defense in the country. And with just 41 seconds remaining in the half and Miami at midfield, Rick Stockstill and the rest of the Seminoles figured the game would make it to halftime tied at zero. The last seconds of the first half, and they're on about the 45, plus 45 midfield range right there. And and it's basically they're just throwing one up. And, uh, you know, they throw a takeoff. I think it was to Larry Brodsky, but I'm not, I can't remember uh, <clears throat> their receiver. And, uh, but they throw it in the end zone and it's, you know, overthrown. It's, you've got no chance to catch it. And, you know, they call pass interference on us. And back then, you know, for pass interference in the end zone, you know, they put it on the one-yard line. The dubious pass interference call was brought up after the game, and even Miami's receiver said he didn't think a flag should have been thrown. Nevertheless, on the next play, Miami's Jim Kelly scored on a quarterback sneak for the first points allowed by Florida State's defense in 14 quarters. Trailing 7 to nothing, Florida State answered in the third quarter with a Bill Capice field goal to cut the lead to 7-3. to Miami restored its seven-point advantage with a field goal that was deflected by Florida State's Bobby Butler. Maybe the Seminoles shouldn't have tried to block it, since the other three attempts by Miami's kicker were unimpeded and all sailed wide of the uprights. Trailing 10-3, Stockstill led the Seminoles on a desperate march, with less than a minute to go in the game. At the 11-yard line, he found teammate Sam Childers in the end zone. Play was 62, and that's a a post by Z by the outside receiver. And then Sam was our tight end and he runs a, a wheel route. And uh, I pumped the, the post there and the guy jumped it and had left Sam, you know, he was you know pretty wide open there coming off the, off, off the wheel route, hit him for a touchdown. 
you know, so that put it 10 to nine. And really that play that we scored on is the play we had worked on, you know, for the, as a two point play, you know, during the week. The score was now 10 to nine and Florida state had a decision to make. Its next two games were against undefeated top five teams Settling for a tie here was understandable, considering it was likely that the team would lose one or both of those games. Or it could go all in on the 1980 season and go for two points and the win. According to Bowden, there was no decision. Quote, I just couldn't have lived with going for a tie, he said. I don't think my team could have either. Florida State wideout Kurt Unglaub remembers the play. A receiver had broken open in the end zone, but Miami's nose guard Jim Burt swam right through backup center Rebus Coggins and knocked down Stockstill's pass. Well, I mean, I was in the game and I didn't come out, so I was either going to hold for field goal for Capice or else I was going to stay in the game with wide receiver. So I was just kind of waiting to see what they were going to do. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, all of a sudden I, I, you know, I see Stockstill coming back out and I'm going, okay, I guess we're going for two. And, uh, you know, I, I know the play that we ran. It was in some kind of a, a crossing route to our inside receiver. I was on the, I was on the left side waiting to split out left. So I was basically trying to run my guy off. And then we're trying to run a crossing route underneath the, you know, kind of behind the linebacker type stuff. So the play was there, you know, uh, but we just, our execution was poor. I guess our offensive lineman just didn't get burnt knocked down well enough, but, at the end of the day, you know, I was an emotional loss, emotional, emotional, emotional loss by everybody. Um, you know, it, it was just a, a drain. I mean, a big drain. I'm mean, here left. Your first game, you lose. And, you know, that plane ride home was a long plane ride home. I, I tell you, it was a long plane ride home. Schnellenberger called it one of the top three wins of his career. And the Hurricanes rose to number 13 before losing back-to-back-to-back games against Notre Dame, Mississippi State, and Penn State. Miami would finish 9-3, and three, the most wins for the program in 30 years. It was only year two of Schnellenberger's five-year plan, but something big was brewing in South Beach. Florida State's players were dejected. It was their first loss in 19 regular season games, and it happened on the same field that their undefeated season had come to an end last year against Oklahoma in the Orange Bowl. The Seminoles had little time to sulk. Florida State was next to travel to Lincoln, Nebraska for a clash with the Cornhuskers. When asked after the game if his players were depressed, Bowden said, well, once they see the films of Nebraska's game against Penn State, depression will turn into shock. In the days following the game, in a barber shop in Tallahassee, a customer was ranting about how the Florida State players shouldn't be blamed for losing to Miami. He turned to the gentleman in the chair next to him and said that it was all the coach's fault. You're right. They ought to fire every doggone one of them, the second man said to a chorus of laughter from the barbers. The man speaking was Bob Harbison, Florida State's defensive line coach that had been on staff for all but two years of the program's history. Next week on Hidden Yardage, the story of the 1980 college football season. The title picture starts to take shape as two top 10 teams go down at home. Alabama gets an unexpected test in the Big Apple, and Florida State's season is on the ropes in Lincoln against Nebraska and Big Red. Penn State tries to save its season with a visit to unbeaten Missouri, and undefeated UCLA looks to settle a grudge against second-ranked Ohio State. The Hidden Yardage Podcast is researched, written, narrated, and produced by me, Joe Moore. 
If you enjoyed the episode, please rate and review wherever you listen to podcasts. For a list of everybody that appeared in this episode and special acknowledgments, visit the website at www.hiddenyardagepodcast.com. There you'll find a full transcript of every show, as well as schedules, stats, and standings from the 1980 season. Please email your questions and comments to me at joe at hiddenyardagepodcast.com. This podcast is made possible through Moonlight Magic Productions. Thank you for listening. Hey there, Sports History fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude. And I hope that you enjoyed this recent episode presented by the Sports History Network and were able to learn some good old-fashioned sports history knowledge nuggets. I started the Sports History Network back in 2020 with the mission to help podcasters find a community of like-minded sports history nerds as well as helping aspiring podcasters to start their own shows. We have a little bit over 30 shows on the network right now covering all sorts of sports history, but as far as I'm concerned, we're just at the toothpick in the ocean moment, you know that. Can't even figure it out because there's so much more coming. We wanted to create the ultimate headquarters for sports yesteryear, starting with Podcast Network and our website, but we're going to continue to move into other mediums as well. And here's the cool part, because we want you to be part of our team. So if you're interested in starting your own podcast, or maybe being a guest on one of our shows, or who knows, maybe even writing an article for us over on the website. Seriously, all you got to do is reach out to us on the contact page over at sportshistorynetwork.com. You can be as technologically savvy as a Neanderthal tapping on a stone trying to figure out this whole hieroglyphics thing back in the day. Again, it doesn't matter, because even if you don't understand the whole podcast space, we have a production team that can pretty much help you out with doing everything. All you gotta do, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com, head to the contact page, fill it out. That message goes right to me, and I'll reach out to you as soon as I can. But for now, dude, I'm through if you're through.